reread just a section of our extremely long passage this morning. So I'll read the whole thing. So, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse starting at verse 13. The king answered the people harshly. He disregarded the advice that the older men had given him and spoke to them according to the advice of the young men. My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people because it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah. How do you say that? They would pronounce this really good. <laughs> the style Monite to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. When all Israel saw that the king would not listen to them, the people answered the king, What share do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, O David. So Israel went away to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah. Jumping to verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and resided there. He went out from there and built Penuel. Then Jeroboam said to himself, Now the kingdom may well revert to the house of David. If this people continues to go up and offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, the heart of this people will turn, will turn again to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. He said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, and the other he set in Dan. Oh boy. <laughs> this passage is a lot of trouble. We see this passage, uh, Rehoboam, who is the son of King Solomon. Solomon, who is the son of David, King David. Um, comes to power and the people whose lives have been uh, made difficult because Solomon conscripted slaves from the people of the land and from the people of Israel to build the temple and his own house and the city come to his son and say make our yoke easier but Rehoboam doesn't listen to the elders and decides that he is going to answer the people. Uh, well, I'll use a less graphic metaphor, but uh, no, I'm going to make it harder on you. And so we kind of missed this in the passage. It wasn't part of today. It wasn't part of the reading, but um, it had been prophesied that this man, Jeroboam, would become king over 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And when that happened during Solomon's lifetime, Solomon sought to kill Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam fled to Egypt. 
And when Rehoboam comes back into power and answers the people in this way, they, the people call to Jeroboam in Egypt and say, come back and become our king. And the kingdom of Israel, the 12 tribes, made up of the 12 sons, is now split 10 and 2, with the two in the southern kingdom being ruled by Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Jerusalem exists in the southern kingdom. And the ten northern tribes existing in the northern kingdom with Jeroboam being their king. It is incredible that as Solomon goes about using conscripted labor from the people of God to build his temple and house, his house and his city, that that becomes the very moment that the kingdom of God that he is trying to build on earth begins to crumble. How do we get to these super blatant wrong actions? These conflicts among God's people. How do we get to the place where conscripted slaves and golden calves have once again entered the narrative of the people of God. Here we are, generations after Moses. We are so evolved now. We don't enslave people. We have laws to protect people, right? We don't set up golden idols. We don't worship these ideas of wealth and prosperity. We don't order our lives around them. We are super involved now. And yet it seems like we are just right back in stuck in this loop when it comes to idolatry and slavery. As the people of God, people who were defined as this peculiar people who were actually freed from oppressors and created in God's image to embody the holy name of God. It's like all of these little constellations and time passing and history and political action and inaction, you know, continues to affect our faithfulness to God's identity. Who God is calling God's peculiar people to be is constantly in dialogue. It's in dialogue with dominant culture, dominant leaders, power structures, the military powers. And so when God's people, the disenfranchised slaves of Egypt, when their king becomes the leader of the world, what happens? It's like in trying to build up this identity of, of who Solomon is supposed to be. I mean, God did tell David, you're not to build a temple because of all the blood on your hands, but your son will build a temple. Solomon is supposed to build this house for God. It's the right thing to do. It's the thing he should do. It's the thing he ought to do. But he lost who he was and who the people were in the process. 
And our scripture reminds us this morning that even though we might be so evolved and advanced from that narrowly possible promise of descendants as numerous as the, as the stars in the sky that God gave to Abram, our sophisticated religion isn't worth much if we be, build beautiful houses, if we keep the peace, but we do so by enslaving God's people and worshiping the power and wealth structures of our day. It's not worth much because it's a compromise of our very identity. You would think that it would be simple. The identity of the people of God is summed up in ten commandments. Ten commandments to a fully formed identity. Ten commandments to tell us who we are and how we're supposed to be in the world. It shouldn't be too hard to keep ten laws. I mean, how many do we have to keep? But we know that by Jesus' day, the rabbis had made the Ten Commandments into 20, into 40, into 80, into 160. The rabbis added hundreds of asterisks and footnotes to the Ten Commandments. Living out these ten became so much more complicated and difficult than they were at first. It was like, oh, but there's this, and there's that, and there's this, and there's that. And we know Jesus challenged all of this, right? He kind of threw it on his head. And as people who follow Christ, Christians, we know that the legalism of the law isn't the thing that's most important. But rather it is accepting this revolutionary love of God, this care of God, the love of Christ, the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. So we know that it's not the legalism of the law that's most important. Or do we? See, we tend to talk more about morals and virtues and values. Not so much commandments and laws. But has that change in language changed our posture towards these things? Or are we still multiplying, expounding upon, dividing, and judging what these Christian morals, values, and virtues mean for today. We should do a lot of things. We ought to be doing this and this and this. We should be taking a Sabbath. We ought to say no more. We should know how to take care of our families. We ought to be good sons and mothers and grandmothers and aunts and uncles. We should be working to eliminate racism. We ought to know more people who are different than us. We should give our best self to our work. We ought to work harder. We should be kind to our neighbors. We ought to know them better. We should do all the research about political candidates so that we are informed voters. We ought to vote in every election possible. We should, we ought, we should, we ought. It never ends. Shoulds make us work a little harder, though. They are the thing that help us get places on time. Uh, they help us respond to emails. They uh, help us to step away sometimes and calm down. Oughts 
create functioning families, functioning societies and churches even. But shoulds standing outside of an identity as a child of God, a sister in Christ, an embodiment of the Spirit, also drive all kinds of disembodied stances and dismembered hearts. Oughts, standing outside of an identity as a child of God, a sister in Christ, an embodiment of the Spirit, also give us a mask to wear as we wander through the wilderness of our lives. See, the complicated nature of societies and policies and families actually make it easier to remember all of the oughts of doing all of the things. When our identity actually hinges on us being all of the things. It seems crazy that Abraham, who had this amazing faith, his son Isaac, who surrendered to personal sacrifice, his son Jacob, who wrestled with God, would have children who literally couldn't refrain from enslaving their brothers and sisters the way that they were back in Egypt before they had this identity. That their brothers and sisters are actually the ones that lead them to worship this image of wealth and status and false unity. What a height to fall from. These people who ate the unleavened bread in Egypt because it didn't have time to rise. That's how quickly God freed them from slavery. Still eat this unleavened bread, but do so with shackles on their hands and the calf to go and worship. God freed them from slavery, and now they're enslaved by their brothers and sisters in a self-imposed slavery. Could it be that the multiplication of doing the right things out of high and holy values <clears throat> becomes the very thing that can undermine who we are and whose we are. <clears throat> when I was at um, the Creation Care Summit this past weekend, raise your hand if you're at the summit. Uh, there was a there was a, a guy there who was doing our, our food for us for the weekend. His name was Ryan. And I was talking with Ryan one day while we were preparing. And he started telling me about how he, um, he was going to become a beekeeper. And he, he was telling me, like, you know, like, I was at the point where I was getting ready to step into beekeeping. And um, he was like, and I was already, you know, I like, you know, I had this big garden. I ran this restaurant. He has three kids. He's living in community. And he was like, when I, when I started, 
you know, when I was like stepping into about to become a beekeeper, he said it was kind of like a realization hit him. Like, he said, I, I always thought that, you know, one day I would be doing, I would get there. I would be doing all the things I was supposed to be doing. And he said, when I started to think about beekeeping, I started to realize that that there's no end to this path. That there's no lack of the next right thing to do. That, that he can literally go on forever following the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And he said it really, it really uh, confronted him. And, and he, he decided, like, I know who I am. I know where I'm at. I know what I'm doing. And for him, he decided that, that the line stopped just before beekeeping for him. And then um, I was at uh, Caleb and uh, Britt Bowlerjack's workshop, which was just about practic practical uh, what things they were doing. And uh, Britt Bowlerjack, who's a pastor in Oklahoma City, she was telling how she, a year and a half ago or so, she did this thing where she tried to, to go zero waste. And she, you know, she was kind of mapping it on social media. And she... Um, you know, did all of these things to try to to do to do this. So she started baking her. She went to bulk stores. It took a lot of time. She went to like four different grocery stores to get all of her things in bulk. And she started making her own like you know uh, soaps, laundry soaps, toothpaste, everything. She started making everything so that she could be zero waste. And then at the end of each week, she would take a picture of all the waste that she produced for that week. And she showed us these pictures. And like one week, it was like. I mean, she did really good. I, I don't think I could do this. It was like a Starburst wrapper, you know, and like a few other things. Like for a whole week, this was her waste for a whole week. And, um, and but as a part of the workshop, she said at the end, she was like, you know, like after that month, you know, I was just thinking like, I'm just going to keep going, right? I'm just going to zero waste, zero waste lifestyle. And she was like, and then like some things happened, and I realized some things. And she's like, one of those things that happened was like, I ran out of toothpaste. And she was like, and I was like, kept telling myself, I'm gonna make more toothpaste. And I kept telling that to myself, but then like three weeks went by, and I never made more toothpaste. She also didn't buy toothpaste, so she went three weeks without toothpaste. And. She was like, and that's kind of that was kind of like a, a awakening, you know, sign for me. Like, like I don't, I don't think this is practical for me. And then she said something really profound. She said, like, you know, I realized I don't even, I don't even want to be zero waste. I don't even think that I should be zero waste. She goes, even on my Instagram, that's about that. I call myself low waste because she knew enough about herself to know. She goes, I buy my toothpaste from some other girl who makes it. It's not like she went to back to buy whatever. It wasn't that she learned, didn't learn anything from the experience. But she knew herself enough after three weeks of no toothpaste to know where her line was. And we are all constantly in transition, right? The whole world is moving and we are all a part of that. We are all in our own ways changing and many of us are like figuring out 
who we are and what we're going to do in life. And many of us are really in a season of being consumed by our own physical or psychological needs or the same, but for those we care for. Um, many of us might be in survival mode, kind of enduring a season, hoping for change, looking at the leaves and how beautiful they are in their deaths and hoping our like deaths are just as beautiful, trying to trust that there is a greater rhythm to all of this. Crying out to Jesus, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. In the middle of our day in and day out lives, the values, oughts, and shoulds often become the very thing that serve to both enslave us and systematically entrench us in idol worship. And when our identity becomes worship of these values, we once again find that we are slaves. See, idolatry and slavery have a subtle but profound connection. If, if what we ought to do is synonymous with our to-do list, then we are not anymore ourselves. Because you are not who you ought to be. Finding your identity as a child of God, as a brother of Christ, as a temple of the Spirit, opens this scary door where everything on the t- is on the table, and the table just so happens to be made of butcher block. And so those oughts and shoulds are on the table. And you do you is also on the table. And at the table, we find that we aren't called to serve the donkey and elephant gods of our very evolved culture. And at the table, we find that our identity isn't as conscripted slaves of wealth and prosperity and abundance for our very evolved culture. At the table, we allow God's identity to be found very deeply in our being, where God's words cut even to dividing flesh and marrow. And at the table, you do you is transformed into the image of Christ. A true vocation that finally frees us from the Pharaohs and fellows that fail us. Parker Palmer talks about this vocation in his little book, Let Your Life Speak. He says, I first learned about vocation growing up in the church. I value much about the religious tradition in which I was raised. But the idea of vocation I picked up in those circles created distortion until I grew strong enough to discard it. That concept of vocation is rooted in a deep distrust of selfhood. 
in the belief that the sinful self will always be selfish unless corrected by external forces of virtue. It is a notion that made me feel inadequate to the task of living my own life. Creating guilt about the distance between who I was and who I was supposed to be, leaving me exhausted as I labored to close the gap. Today, I understand vocation, not as a goal to be achieved, but as a gift to be received. Discovering vocation does not mean scrambling towards some prize just beyond my reach, but accepting the treasure of my true self I already possess. The vacation, vocation, vacation is different. Vocation does not come from a voice out there calling me to become something I am not. It comes from a voice in here calling me to be the person I was born to be, to fulfill the original selfhood given me at birth by God. And so if we walk back and sideways through the door of slavery and idolatry, I wonder, could it be that, could it be that idolatry is more often than not an inaccurate picture of God's image reflected in the mirror each morning. In slavery, often the outflow of that distorted image. Let me say that again. Could it be that idolatry is more often than not an inaccurate picture of God's image reflected back to us in the mirror each morning? And slavery, often an outflow of that image. We may not think of our lives, we may not think of our lives revolving around work as idolatry, but could it be that work is sort of this thing that we've set up that's a little bit closer than where God is all the way in Jerusalem? And we set it up because we are afraid that God's provision isn't so provisional. Or we fear that we're not really cared for, we will not really be taken care of, that we are not really loved. Do you know what God's people without Sabbath are called? Slaves. Who we ought to be leads us to doing all the things. When God's identity calls us to being all the things. Doing all the things is, I don't know, static. It's restrictive. It's idolatry, slavery. Being all the things is freedom and gift and life and faith. Ironically, ironically, 
The things that you most should do are the things that you will never do because you should do them. But only because you are compelled by your identity as a child of God to be a part of the human community living on earth. See, sanctified, sanctified people don't do what they ought to. Sanctified people do what they love to. Another great character says it in Star Wars. My favorite quote. That's how we're going to win. Not fighting what we hate, but saving what we love. As I left the Creation Care Summit this week, I mean, it's just like the nature of these things, right? That you leave and you're very, like, inspired and you're like, I'm going to go change the world and so is everyone else. And I could have been filled with these resolutions to do better, be zero waste or something, to join the fight, to... Um, you know, there's so much energy to feed off of. There was uh, so many good things to hear and share and receive, and yet as I left, left the summit, the truly amazing thing is that I didn't have ten things to do and the energy to do them, although that's very common for me. Like, ten things to do and the energy to do them. But what I felt instead was this incredible gratitude to have been graced by the presence of this incredible group of people, to have the honor of serving in the very small ways that I did, to receive with humility the gift of others. I told Caleb on the way home that it was like so weird because like I had all this time to clean up after the summit was over, and I was cleaning in the same vicinity as the other Ryan who was cooking. And I was like, Caleb, it was so weird. I, it was like awkward because I just kept telling him like, thank you, thank you so much. Like, I don't know how many times I told him thank you. And, and I was like, and the weirdest part was that I meant it. <laughs> the weirdest part was like, I really felt thankful for his contribution. I was like, I don't know that I've ever felt so thankful in my entire life. I don't know. And it wasn't just about Ryan, it was just the whole thing of it. <laughs> You know, I just, as I left, I had this deep sense like, ah, oh, these are my people, right? These are my people. And it reminded me of my kid's favorite movie, The Grinch. And how when The Grinch finally realizes he's a part of the, the Who community, what happens? His heart grows three sizes. And I can't help but think that if Solomon had had a moment like that, if Jeroboam would have had a moment like that, if Rehoboam would have had a moment like that, if gratitude and love and God's very self would have been received, that there is no way that this conscripted labor and idolatry would have taken place. It would have been 
it wouldn't have been out of a place of, I ought not do that because of the law. They had that. They had the law. But out of a place of, oh, I'm loved and they are too. I'm cared for and they are too. I'm a child of God and they are too. These are my people. To walk around in the world as a Christian is to walk around everywhere saying, thinking, feeling deeply, these are my people. To experience that with such a deep gratitude and love. And so I know that, um, you know, Jesus could have probably done this, but he didn't. And so I don't know if this is heretical to do, but I sort of rewrote the Ten Commandments. Um, We'll call it an artistic, it's like art. It's an artistic interpretation. It's art, so it's unquestionable, right? Um, So I just want to read as we close the Ten Commandments that I rewrote. Um, Yeah. And how different they feel than those oughts and shoulds that the original ten often bring up in us. Number one, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, speak and incarnate God's love, which is God's truth. Number three, Acquire an unbelievable faith in God's provision that doesn't require your contributions. Number four, care for the poor and needy in the family of God. Number five, speak, breathe, inhabit, and embody the life of God's self. Number six, give the utmost value and respect to your words commitments, and covenants to each other. Number seven, honor, love, and respect all people, their contributions, needs, possessions, and covenants in your actions. Number eight, honor, love, and respect all people, their contributions, needs, possessions, and covenants in your words. Number nine, honor, love, and respect all people, their contributions, needs, possessions, and covenants in your thoughts. Number ten, practice gratitude for the honor, love, and respect of all people, their contributions, needs, possessions, and covenants. In Matthew chapter five, right after the Beatitudes. Right after Christ's description of his people as the salt and the light. Jesus assures us, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Let's pray. Lord, pray 
pray that you would be present with us. That you would help us surrender the idols enslave us. That you would guide us gently and humbly the vocation that is our true self. That you would give us a deep-seated love, care, concern, respect, honor for all of your people, for the whole world. May we experience that world as these are my people. We pray this in Christ's name.